Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's show, exoplanets, the planets orbiting a star that is not our sun, now number in their known thousands. But scientists want to know more information about what kind of planets they are. Could long-distance photography help? The sort of holy grail is to take pictures of them directly, a technique called direct imaging, which is literally you point a really big telescope at one of these things and you take a picture of it. Also coming up, the Global Climate Conference, COP22, has been taking place in Marrakesh over the past week. Our environment correspondent reports back. In the second week, there was a shift towards a greater sense of resilience. You know, even if America doesn't quite know what it's doing, other countries need to step up and do their bit regardless. And we explore a new idea for tackling air pollution using old jet engines. You point it at the sky and you switch it on. And the idea is that it entrains or captures the emissions from the plant and pushes them up. First, though... Exoplanets were discovered a quarter of a century ago. Since then, over 3,500 of them have been found in all shapes and sizes. But while it's now become commonplace to detect them, it's tricky to get a detailed idea of what they're like. Scientists aren't satisfied, so we're exploring one way to change this, taking better pictures. Joining me now to explain why this is a tricky thing to do, but why it's worth the effort, is science correspondent Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, first, can you give us an idea about what these exoplanets are like? Well, this is exactly the point. We know that thousands of these things exist, but we know very few details about them. So you see these headlines which say things like, scientists discovered a planet with oceans all over it that are kilometers thick, or one particularly exotic one that stuck in my mind, scientists have discovered a carbon planet with a crust made of graphite and a mantle that's probably a gigantic hunk of solid diamond. And that all sounds really impressive, but it's all conjecture, because the way we discover exoplanets, we either look for the sort of faint dimming in the star's light that you get when a planet passes in front of the star, as seen from the Earth, or you look for the tiny little wobble that the planet's gravity causes in its parent star as it goes around it. And those things will tell you that the planet's there, but all they'll tell you about it is you know, its mass, uh, its orbital period, maybe give, it a, give you a very vague idea of its, its size, its diameter. Everything beyond that is kind of just conjecture based on how close the planet is to the star and what we think it might be made of and what the conditions might be like. So what can we do about this? What's the best way to actually identify what's going on in these exoplanets? The sort of holy grail is to take pictures of them directly, a technique called direct imaging, which is literally you point a really big telescope at one of these things and you take a picture of it in the same way that you would take a picture of Mars or Jupiter or Venus, only it's much, much harder. So what do we need to overcome to take these pictures? So there are two problems, really. One is that they're so far away. So you have a star with a planet orbiting it, and it's many, many light years distant. And what that means is when you look at it in the sky, the apparent separation, the sort of distance in the sky between the star and its planet is absolutely tiny. 
Astronomers measure it in units called arc seconds. One arc second is the size of an American dime coin seen from about four kilometers away. So you've got to make out these incredibly fine details. The second problem is that stars are very bright and planets aren't. So any planet that is there tends to get completely lost in the huge glare of the stars. And do we have a way of doing that? We do. We have technology that can do it for, for, for something. So we, we have about 20 images of exoplanets already. And you can use a device called a coronagraph, which blots out the star's light to solve the glare problem. You can use a really big mirror to solve the resolution problem. And we're just on the edge of being able to do that. So all of the planets we've taken pictures of so far are really, really big, much bigger than Jupiter, hot in themselves because they've recently formed, and that means they emit infrared radiation. And if you look in the infrared spectrum, the contrast between the star and the planet is a bit less, and they orbit a long, long, long way away from their stars, so like way further out than Pluto orbits from the sun. And what we want to do in the coming years and decades is get those numbers down so that we can get smaller planets slightly closer in, maybe start looking in optical wavelengths and so on. So the nearest star is Proxima Centauri. Should we start there? Well, that's one idea, and we actually know that there is an exoplanet around Proxima Centauri. In fact, it's in the star's habitable zone, which is that part of space in which liquid water can exist, and it's probably rocky. The problem is Proxima Centauri is a very small star, which means it's very cool and very dim, and that means that the habitable zone is, is really, really close in. The star is too close to the planet. We can't really take pictures of it. But we might have more luck at Alpha Centauri, Proxima's bigger brother, if you like, that's quite nearby. It's about four light years from Earth. And Alpha Centauri is a sun-like star, which means the habitable zone is further out. And because it's so close, if there are planets there, we might be able to take pictures of them using, you know, fairly cheap, fairly standard astronomical kit. What is fairly cheap and fairly standard in your definition? Well, so there's an organization called Project Blue that wants to launch a mission like this with private funding. And they reckon you could do it for about $50 million. So they're proposing, if they can get all this money together, to launch a fairly small telescope with a 45-centimeter mirror, which is really, really small by, by modern standards, sometime towards the end of this decade. They're going to take a look at Alpha Centauri for several years and just see what they can find. If you want to go any further than that, though, you start to talk about some pretty serious hardware. Some of that is coming, but that's going to be a lot more expensive. What are they? There's something called the James Webb Space Telescope, which is sort of a successor to the Hubble. That's due to launch in 2018. Much bigger mirror, reasonably capable coronagraph. And then back on the ground, astronomers are working on a new generation of really, really enormous telescopes. So there's one called the, fairly prosaically, the European Extremely Large Telescope, which is going to have a mirror that's almost 40 metres in diameter, which is four times the size of anything we've got now. That's due to, to start seeing in the mid-2020s. That would probably just about get you to a point where you could take a picture of the planet around Proxima Centauri, this smaller, much closer one, and probably quite a few others as well. Let me pose a question. As excited as I am about this, is there any practical application of what we're learning? Probably not directly. If there's a habitable exoplanet around Alpha Centauri, and no one knows, we might be able to get enough light from it to do things like we could get a rough idea, a very rough idea of its geography. Might be able to tell how much of it is liquid, how much of it is solid. We might be able to see seasonal variations in the atmosphere. We maybe might even be able to see if we saw more chaotic, less regular variations, weather and so on. And that would obviously, you know, that would be amazing. As a piece of pure science, it would be, you know, to find a habitable exoplanet right next door would be one of the greatest discoveries for decades. But direct applications, 
Probably not. The optics necessary to do this is really impressive. There may be some sort of applications for that at some point in the future. But for now, this is a matter of pure science. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Absolutely not. That sounds great. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. So what do you think, listeners? Should this sort of project be funded by taxpayers or left to crowdfunding? Have your say by emailing us at radio at economist.com or get in touch through our Twitter and Facebook accounts. The latest round of international climate talks, known as COP22, just took place in Marrakesh. Scientists, environmentalists, and political leaders the world over are concerned about the ambiguous stance that America's president-elect Donald Trump takes towards climate change. Here's John Kerry, America's Secretary of State, making the current administration's views clear on the matter. We have to continue this fight, my friends. We have to continue to defy expectations. We have to continue to accelerate the global transition to a clean energy economy. And we have to continue to hold one another accountable for the choices that our nations make. Donald Trump has threatened to rip up the Paris Agreement, and he campaigned on a pledge to get fossil fuels burning again to boost industry at home. So will he cook up the planet, or is it too early to tell? Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent, is here to discuss. Hello, Miranda. Hey, Ken. Miranda, first, how was the mood at COP22? So the meeting lasted for two weeks. The Monday, the mood was high because the Paris Agreement itself, adopted a year ago, actually came into force earlier this month. So it took less than a year to be ratified. And people were astounded by the speed of that. So the Monday was was sort of jubilant. And I think towards the middle of the first week, When it became clear that Mr. Trump had emerged victorious, people were a little more concerned. There was trepidation. His policies are unclear. And then in the second week, there was a shift towards a greater sense of resilience. You know, even if America doesn't quite know what it's doing, whether Donald Trump is going to pursue climate action or not, other countries need to step up and do their bit regardless. So what could other countries do if they don't have America on board? So the eyes of the world are on China, I think, at this point, because cooperation between Obama and Xi Jinping since roughly 2013, particularly on the issues of short-lived climate pollutants, things like soot and methane and HFCs, have knit them together in a kind of climate alliance. So If America does step back a little bit from climate leadership, everyone's wondering whether China will continue. And what does America retreating from climate leadership actually look like and mean practically? The Paris deal was constructed very cleverly. Previous climate deals tried to take an overall goal and impose cutbacks on people, whereas the Paris Agreement asked countries what they were willing to do, got them to submit pledges accordingly of cutbacks or attempts to protect forest and other things, and then knitted those together and said, everyone do what you've pledged to do, and the overall aim is to limit warming. In practical terms, America not continuing in the leadership role that it has done may mean that finance is trickier to come by, that poorer countries will struggle to get the kind of support they need to support transition to cleaner energies. 
and also that the rules of how exactly countries measure their emissions cutbacks are a little bit less open and a little bit less robust than they might have otherwise been. So I don't have the feeling that you're saying that America is going to turn 180 degrees away from the gains that it's already made and sort of go back into the 19th century. So will the planet survive a four-year Trump administration if it absolutely does nothing or in fact boosts industry by emitting coal into the air? So it's difficult to say again because we don't quite know what Mr. Trump is planning. Just recently, he has admitted that there is some connectivity between human actions and climate change. In the US, states actually control their grids and therefore they control what goes into them. So if California and New York, uh, for example, continue to add renewables to their mix, as looks likely. Emissions may indeed continue to fall in America and the low price of gas also makes that a very real possibility. It's about market realities. Miranda, thank you very much. That's really interesting. Thank you. In last week's episode, we talked about the rise of fake news and whether it had any impact on America's presidential election. We asked you on Twitter whether Facebook and Google should have done more to stop the spread of unverified news during the election. One Twitter user wrote, quote, absolutely they should have. They have an enormous role in what is happening, but they ignore the problem just like everyone else does, unquote. But there wasn't a clear consensus. Verena Smith wrote, come on, intelligent readers never fall for fake news. Such fake news I don't believe changed any minds in the election. Another Twitter user agreed, saying, quote, no, they are taking smart steps now, but it's always up to the reader to consider the source, unquote. So should all readers be discerning, or is it up to news aggregator platforms to step in? Don't forget, all of you can get involved in the conversation by writing on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Economist Radio, or creating your own fake news and posting it online. Next up, air pollution is a global problem, but the issue is particularly severe in India. A new technique has been proposed to counter it using old jet engines to flush out the bad air. Here to explain the audacious plan and how it might work is Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. Hal, welcome. Hello. So tell me, why is the problem so bad in India? It's a number of factors. It mostly has to do with the fact that India is a rapidly industrializing country, and Delhi in particular has had its population swell in the last two decades. And a lot of the pollution comes from small engines, diesel generators, open fires, but also big, dirty coal plants, which is the more of the topic of this story. So how does the jet engine plan work? So you take an old jet engine, no longer useful for flying planes because it's not reliable enough, and you bring it next to, as close as possible, the smokestack of your power plant. You point it at the sky and you switch it on, and the idea is that it entrains or captures the emissions from the plant and pushes them up into the sky through what's known as the inversion layer and away from Delhi. And what is this inversion layer? Well, so normally the warmest air sits closest to the ground. As you move up, it gets cooler. An inversion layer is a reversal of this. It can happen for a number of different reasons. Sometimes a slab of warm air will come and sit on cold air overnight, or at night the ground can radiate its heat away and there's no sun to keep the balance. When it does happen, it means that the pollutants can't escape from this bubble of cold air being trapped by the warm air because, as we know, warm air rises 
And if there's cold air underneath, it has nowhere to go. But the carbon's still going up into the air, so we help the people on the ground lead better lives because it doesn't go into their lungs, but we still bake the planet. That is the idea. And I guess we bake the planet a little bit more because now we're running some jet engines in order to improve local lives. So tell me why this is a good thing. Potentially as a short-term fix. No one is saying stop all policies to reduce emissions in Delhi and switch on a bunch of jet engines. What people are saying is those policies aren't going to kick in fast enough to help people who are quite literally dying now because of this pollution. So anything that might improve their lives seems worth trying. Do you have any sense of how much better the air quality will be if we do this crazy scheme of blowing all the fumes up into the atmosphere? The meteorologists that we spoke to were were quite sceptical about whether it would actually work. The researchers' mathematics mostly deals with whether or not the jet can lift a reasonable amount of pollution up, but it doesn't deal with whether or not the jet can take that pollution up through this inversion layer and away from Delhi. It is going to be tested, though, within the next eight months, so we will find out. So where are they going to get these jet engines? This is a good question and kind of core to the story. It's very important that the engines be cheap or free because any kind of expense obviously makes a project in Delhi unfeasible. They're getting some from the Indian Air Force. They've been promised six. But they're also working on getting four from a place known as the Boneyard, which is a specific wing of the US Air Force that deals exclusively with scrapping aircraft, essentially. This is a place where there are four and a half thousand airplanes, jet planes, sitting around in the desert in Arizona. So they're in touch with that Air Force wing to try and get their hands on some engines. That's really incredible. There's four and a half thousand just decommissioned aircraft sitting around in Arizona. Of all kinds, not just Top Gun airplanes, but big troop transports, all sorts, just sitting around waiting to be decommissioned. I'm sure it's all very organized, though. (laughs) I'm sure it is. Well, listen, Hal, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read any of the articles discussed this week, make sure to pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or online. Any questions or comments about this week's issue? Email us at radio at economist.com. We enjoy reading all the emails, and you might even be a star if we read it out loud on the next episode of Babbage. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.